Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here not too far away from Threlkeld, down in the valley bottom, uh, on a lovely autumnal evening with author, illustrator, and, well, not our guide for today's walk, but... uh, He's here, Mr. Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hello, David. Well, this is a, a strange circumstance to be here because I believe you've been somewhere else. Come on, own up. Where have you been? It's true, yes. So we, we've had a bit of a gap, haven't we? We've had a four-week interlude between the last Country Stride and today's. This is really unusual, but through a range of circumstances, dates didn't quite work out, weather didn't quite work out. Uh, we haven't recorded, but it's true. Yesterday, I drove down the M6 into London, but there is a a very strong Cumbrian connection, Mark. Ah, goodness me. I believe you met a a certain man who I think many of our listeners will be very much tuned into, whether they may have watched the South Bank show or uh, on Radio 4, tuned into In Our Time, Lord Bragg of Wigton, the great uh, cultural icon of Cumbria. Absolutely right. A great author broadcaster across many many decades fast becoming a national treasure i would think and he was kind enough to invite us down to his hampstead home mark to talk about his most recent book and this is the memoir back in the day a beautiful very rich evocation of his early life from his birth just before the second world war to when he left the town uh, at the age of 18 a wonderful book, this, that does so much to bring a community to life that he remembers with impeccable detail. Pin-sharp memory. Uh, that's what uh, sets him apart in many respects, his ability to cope with detail, and we know that from in our time. We do roll out the quick-fire questions. We could not do that. <laughs> so we'll find out what Melvin's favourite fell is among our quick-fire questions. But a wide-ranging conversation about Wigton about some of the mental health struggles that he faced as young as 13, and that great conflict, I think, between staying in your hometown and this place that he adored and moving away. So a lot to get through. We'll virtually move now, Mark, 320 miles, I think it is, as the crow flies from just below Threlkeld to a very, very sunny Hampstead. Well, I'm not in Cumbria today. I'm down south. I'm in lovely Hampstead with the sun streaming in through the windows of a fine townhouse down here. And I'm in the company of one of Cumbria's living greats, author, broadcaster, parliamentarian and son of Wigton, Melvin Bragg. Melvin, there's so much we could talk about today. More than 40 books I think you've written your remarkable career in both radio and television, not least Radio 4's In Our Times, which celebrated its 1,000th episode just two months ago, uh, or indeed your contribution to politics. Uh, you were appointed to the House of Lords in 1998. 
But that life is not the one we're focusing on in this podcast. Instead, we will follow you and your most recent book and memoir back in the day to the early years of your life in Cumbria and specifically to the town of Wigton. Uh, before we do that, when we record Country Stride, what we usually ask our guests is to take us on a walk that they love, a real favourite walk for them in Cumbria. And if we were up there, Melbourne, where would you take us on a walk? Well, I'd go out of my cottage in High Ivy, which is on Binsey Fell. Turn left out of the cottage and start walking up Binsey Fell. There's two routes up. And the nice thing is, if you walk up the fell and don't look behind you, you see very little except a steeply accelerating field. And then you come to the crest... And then you go to the top, and it's wonderful. This Cumberland, all Cumberland is in front of you. If you look to your east, you can just about see the Pennines. On a clear day, we say we can see the Isle of Man, but I think we're sort of boasting about that one. You can certainly see deep into the Lake District. And it's a lovely walk, and uh, I'm very, very fond of Binsley Fell. Wainwright was very fond of it too. I discovered later to my satisfaction, because where he goes, I'm very happy to follow. It's a lovely, lovely little fell. Okay, so that's the walk that we have in our mind, a favourite walk of yours up Binsey. And we're talking today about your your memoir, Back in the Day. And I'd say at its heart, the book features probably four characters. There's the young Melvin. There's your mother, Mary Ethel, or Ethel. Your father, Stanley. And, of course, the town of Wigton. And I'm wondering if you can start by introducing us to Wigton uh, at that time, the Wigton of your childhood. Maybe start with the historical context, because for the first years of your life, Britain was still at war. Yes, I was born in 1939, and uh, my father was more or less away for the six years in the war. I was brought up in a Wigton that was, I look back on it as just dark, because it was shuttered every night. We were next to Kirkbride and Anthorn, which was a place where aeroplanes were repaired and then sent head shopping back to their base in London or, or wherever it was. And so although it was away from the battlefield, it was still very vulnerable. There were soldiers marching through the streets. There was, from the beginning, a sense that Wigan was a good, tight little town. It was a medieval town. It got its charter in the 12th century. It was a farming town. The streets were full of cattle and sheep being driven most days of the week. There was a magnificent horse fair. So very much a farming place and farms coming into the town. So you walked up street and there's a shop, a shop, a shop, a farm. We lived in a council house, but it was a time when the council used to buy biggish houses that nobody else would buy because they were too expensive, too big, and put two or three families in them. So this house that we lived in was in council house yard and it housed let's say two or three families. Council House Yard was fantastic. First of all, it had the fire station in, so you had the excitement, and when the hooter went from the factory, the firemen would leave their jobs and hurtle down the street and swerve into Station Road and swerve into the yard and put their helmets on and away they'd go. That was really seriously exciting. There was a library there, which was very important for me, in the corner. It was also a yard in which most of the upper end of Station Road, and they did their washing. So they hung their washing out to dry on Mondays. So on Mondays it has these ghostly sheets and they're hanging up and down this quite big yard where otherwise we could play football or do what we wanted. So it was a very contained and cosy place from the start with very amiable people. And we thought we were living an ordinary life and that was that. But when the more I looked at it, I thought, oh, wasn't this? It was extraordinary. <laughs> these people were earning, mostly earning bare-bones wages, really, not struggling, but just, just, just making it, generally by doing more than one job. My parents always had two jobs each. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and the industry in the town, Melbourne, there were two main factories two main at factories, that time. Yeah. One was the factory where they produced cellophane paper, paper you put around cigarette packets. Well, that was mainly for men. And the other was Red Mains, which is a clothing factory that mainly employed women. My father was at the factory for a while, before and after the war. My mother was in Red Mains. She started off as a cracker packer at Carlisle. Oh, the cars? Car, yeah. 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 She was a cracker packer there. And then as soon as she could, she got a job in Wickham, which meant she just literally walked around the corner into Red Mains. And she made buttonholes for about six or seven years. And then when she got married, she got fired, which is what happened in those days. But she liked working at Red Mains because all the other girls worked at Red Mains, all the girls she'd been at school with, all the girls she'd been in the Morris dances with and gone to the socials with and knocked around with. So she was very happy there. And they were a good bunch. There is a definite poverty in the town, particularly the old town. Oh, yes, serious poverty. And people having to, not so much having to fight to survive, but to be very careful. And those in some families were suffering. Boys went to school in uh, plimsolls the year round. And their feet going blue with cold and uh, raggedy clothes. That was happening as well. I think what mitigated it was there was a lot of employment. There was employment in the two factories, there was employment up in the auction, and the shops would employ people one way or another. So people got employed. Even so, for some people, it was tough going. For the very few listeners who don't know where Wigton is, Melvin, can you just put us on the map? Wigton's in the very northwest of England, up near the Scottish border, near the Roman Wall. The nearest city is Carlisle, which some people think was King Arthur's city, an ancient city with a wonderful cathedral and markets place still. It's a farming area, always has been a rich farming area, on the edge of the Lake District, mm. rather isolated, but that didn't bother us very much. We had plenty to do. And there was a sea just 10 miles away at Silloth with the sea with a good beach, West Beach, so we could go there and play in the sand and swim and so on. And lovely Allenby as well, of yeah, course. Yeah, lovely Allenby, yes. Let's introduce your father. You've mentioned him briefly earlier on. This is Stanley, who was away at, on the Western Front. He's in the Air Force, but he moved around quite a lot. Right. Um, my dad was uh, one of nine children. His father, you've got to believe this, uh, was one of 16 children. And they worked down the coal mines, and they worked as labourers in the fields. And this is the West Coast coal mines, This is the West is it? Coast. Yeah, it was okay. the West Coast. My father was brought up in the western part of the... Uh, which he always thought was the best part of Cumberland. Yes. Yes, he uh, keeps saying, doesn't he, real Cumbrians are from the West Coast. from the West, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, of course, at that time, those West Cumberland coal fields are big business. This yeah. is the Lowthers. Workington, Whitehaven, Maryport. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very rich coal. It was anthracite. Mm-hmm. They, they were able to set up steelworks as well. It's a very busy industrial ribbon there, yes. One of the themes that keeps coming back in the book is that your father didn't get the education that really he could have got. He was a bright lad. Yes, that happened. He was clearly a very clever man. He left school when he was 14, but before then he'd won a scholarship to Liverpool Public School. The scholarship was for boys from uh, parish churches in the northwest of England, and he entered for that and got it. But he couldn't go because they couldn't afford this, that and the other. And then he passed it for the grammar school, but he couldn't go because they couldn't afford the uniform and stuff. So he just started work when he was 14. He has this lovely uh, creed, you're better than no one, and no one is better than you. Yes, he heard that in a sermon (laughs) when he was in the forces. He thought he was great, actually. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. And there's this rather lovely story. You go to Blackpool with your dad, and you you don't make it for the... The length of time you were planning to go for? 
No, Dad wasn't for holidays. Like a lot of men who'd been in the way, he'd done his travelling. Uh, and also, by that time, they tenanted a pub. They didn't own it, of course, they tenanted it. And he thought that if you left a pub for a day, it would collapse. It was rubbish, because it didn't, but still. And I, we used to have separate holidays. With my mother, I went to Butlins, mm. which were wonderful holidays at Ayr, and sometimes to Morecambe. With my father, the, <laughs> the one holiday my mother <laughs> persuaded him to take with me was to Blackpool. So we set up a Blackpool. We saw Blackpool play football. That was That's Matthews right. and Mortensen. So that was he was up for that. And we wandered around a bit. He talked to people. He was very easygoing with talking to people. But you could tell after day two, even I could tell, I would be what, nine or ten, that he'd had it. It just was more stiff. And then he saw, I saw in a little shop, a yellow polar neck pullover, bright yellow. My dad saw I was eager on it. And he said, if I get you this, can we go home today instead of two days' time? And I said, yes. So I got it. I put it on over my shirt, of course, and I was very proud of it. And got to Wickton, <laughs> opened the door, and my mother said, well, you'll take that off for a start. <laughs> and I never saw it again. OK, so this is your, your mother, Ethel. Wigton born and bred? Uh, yes. I mean, she was... I didn't discover this until my late teens, that she was illegitimate. Uh, in those days, there was no messing with words. So they would be called people like that. They would call them a bastard. And I think they thought that the bastardy was inherited, like having six fingers. And so because she was a bastard, there was something suspicious about me. Mm. Um, and she had to endure that, which she did with a extraordinary ease. She just became a big part of Wickton. Everybody knew Ethel. She was part of everything. And the Wickton Morris dancers. Anyway, she trained those. Very charming, based on court dancing. Mm. Uh, and they were lovely with bells on their fingers and bells around their ankles. And she was in the cycling club with Dad. Uh, she went to all the socials she could possibly go to. She was just part of the town. And, of course, as I said, worked in the woman's factory. Let's call it the woman's factory, Red Mines. So immediately was with 80, 90 other women. Uh, she was just integrated in the town. You couldn't go up street without stopping about eight times to have a chat. So that's one of the things that fed me. People always talked about Wickton. You got the Wickton Chronicle every time you walked up the street. You write about your mother, the town was under her skin. Well, absolutely. It's everything to her, yeah, really, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. She loves it. The town returned their affection. So you mentioned the pub. This is the Blackamoor. Yeah. Um, you moved there age eight and lived there till 18. So yeah. it, it dominates your early life, really. First of all, talk about your dad's decision. This was a kind of dream come true. It gives him a lot of independence and freedom. And he's, he's very proud of um, being a landlord at this pub. Yes, you've hit on it. It was independence. He was a very independent-minded man. The idea of having a pub as a tenant landlord, I remembered him saying, they can only fire me if I break the law and I'm never going to break the law, which he never did. Ten o'clock chucking out time was ten o'clock, that was it. No more drink was served. And he was a very, very good landlord. He learned how to do it properly. And I learned a lot about how to keep beer. These barrels would come from Workington Brewery, roll down into the cellar, and you'd learn how to tap them properly, how to cool the leads that came up in the cellar. And I worked around in the pub with him, and it was, a, it was great. I liked being able to spike a barrel and get the beer up, and I made sure that the bottles were cleaned and all that. Partly it was the way I earned my pocket money. 
Mm. Partly we just all piled in, didn't think anything of it. So the pub's your home, and talk us through a typical day at the pub then, because the opening hours are very different to ones yeah. we understand now. Well, the opening hours um, were 11.30 to 3, and then 5.30 to 10. Slight variations in holidays, Christmas, those are the opening hours. When you'd get up, you'd clean the pub for the next day. My mother would go through it, polishing it. Uh, my, one of my jobs was to build the fire, so they'd get logs and I'd split them with an axe and then split it into kindling and bring up the kindling for the different fire, which I like doing, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm slamming an axe into a log is very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. And then you had four rooms. You had the bar, which was for men, and that was it, a big settle against the window and a bar that people leaned against. You had a dart room, which was mainly for men. Then you had the singing room, mm. uh, which had a piano, but we had a man who could play the accordion, Jack Atkinson, Jack Ack, and he could play anything that anybody requested. So the singing room was employed on Friday and Saturday and Sunday nights, and it was terrific. Wow. One of the best singing rooms in town. People would come just to sing that, to sing together, to sing solos. That was what it was. It was a singing room. You didn't go in if you didn't enjoy singing or want to sing. And it's then there was the kitchen, which was our kitchen. It was a sort of posh room in the house. So people who had a bit more money would come to the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> okay. And Dad put seating around it. A rather genteel place. By our standards, <laughs> it was a kitchen. And, of course, this is where my mother's uh, presence in the town made such a difference. I mean, everybody knew Ethel. The lads would come when they were getting married and ask if they could have their reception in the pub. Right. And uh, she would tell them, well, you, you should be saving up, you know. If you're getting married in three months, you shouldn't be drinking all this much. You're just wasting your money. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, Ethel. And they knew they were looked after in that way. Mm. And, and it was this business of, oh, they knew everybody. It was a town of about 5,000 people. But 12 places of worship. And how many pubs? By the time I was around, it was about 14. Extraordinary, isn't it? And they were doing well as well. There's a passage, Melvin, about your father and an abiding memory you have of him in the pub, which he loves so much. I wonder if you would be able to read that out. Yeah, and this is from the book. One of the most lasting memory pictures I have is of him standing, leaning against the bar, the pub empty, myself having run down the stairs or younger slid down the banisters, glancing at him as I went out. He would usually turn to me with a kindly smile. That was all. But the picture in the bar held me. Its ancient solidity and the association with the past beyond the pub itself when men came together, as now, to pass the time, to seek and find company and warmth. And in their number and company, dignity often denied them to be part of the world with others of their kind. And that smile, no slickly assumed mask, just from the heart smile, which showed the man he was, contented in his own thoughts. It was a smile, sometimes replaced by a small nod of greeting, which met each customer. It said, we can make something of this life. We are all in this together. The way is to see it through together. It was recognition. I'm going to move on now, uh, Melbourne, to talk about walking and the role that walking plays in the yes. book. Because you have three distinct passages where first your mother, then your father, then yourself walk up Main Street, I think yeah. it is, isn't it? and this depth of detail there. But those walks are really important passages in the day. Yes. Well, we walked everywhere. We didn't have a car. We went to Carlisle on a bus, of course. Or we would go on mystery tours on Sunday nights on buses. The mystery tour after church, you went either to Sillith and Allenby or to Allenby and Sillith. Those were the mystery tours that we went for in the summer. So we walked. 
My mother, I've got my mother's diaries from when she was young and she's walked here, walked there, walked there, then walked down the town, and so did I. Walking up the town was getting to know the town. Hans Werner, that I did a big film with, he said the only way to get to know a place is to walk it, mm. to walk through it. Mm. Proved to be the truth. I mean, it's the best sort of learning, really, it seems to me. I, I mean, Thomas Hardy, when he, he writes about knowing the woods and knowing what... He, it's because he walked every day to and from school the same road, and he wasn't saying, oh, I am going to find out what a beech tree looked. It's just that was everyday life. It's the same with me and Wickham. I mean, everyday life was seeing the fishmonger and the co-op and who was in Sullets and who'd come out of McMickens. If I want to get to sleep now, I just start our pub, come out, turn right and go up street and then turn left at the fountain and go up uh, High Street, which is where the Wickham first began its life at High Street. It was when the Vikings came. So uh, really now, if you're not able to get to sleep, you start that journey, do you? Yeah. This is the equivalent of counting herdwicks or something like yeah, that. Yeah, sort of counting sheep in a way, right? except it's some repetitive activity, which is very soothing. Mm, yeah, yeah. Again, you've hinted at some of the working class life and values but I mean this comes across very strongly and indeed that celebration of them you write the diversity of largely working class activities is vivid I am in awe of the extensive and complex web spun from so little by men and women who refused to be worn down by the deadening work and poor wages the factories kept the town afloat the many hobbies pursued kept it alive. And, I mean, there are so many of these hobbies. You've mentioned some of them, the amazing choirs, yeah. some of the bands going on. Obviously, there's religion, which is weaved through. The fairs, the fireworks, there's so much going on. Uh, and I wonder if you can talk specifically about hound trailing, because your yeah. father we had, we were the, was a great lover of it. Many pubs had their own character. We were the hound trailing pub. Now, hound trails were peculiar to that part of the world, a bit in southern Scotland, a bit in North Lancashire, but basically it's coming on Westmoreland. And those are dogs bred for long-distance running, and they run in the fells. They follow an aniseed track in the fells, and it's a big sport. It's still a good sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very cheap to run. You have a dog, and you take him to these meetings, and if he wins, he gets a rosette and a few pounds, uh, and it's in the newspapers and so on. The town was full of men being pulled along by their eager dogs, and I loved to go to the hound trails, especially the finish, because they'd set off uphill. You would see them going around the fells in a line and you, with your binoculars and that. <laughs> but then they always calculated, so at the end they went into it and then they came up towards the finish. And at the finish, it was a wonderful orchestra because people would blow individual whistles and shouting the names, and it was great. And we were the hound training pub in Wickham. So when there was a hound trail, you couldn't get in. The dogs were all around the front of it, baying and shouting away. Could be quite big dogs. Yes, that was good. This is, uh, again, quite an evocative passage about your mother as, and this is your words, ordinary, just ordinary, as near as just like everyone else as she would ever get. But at the same time, she's extraordinary. She gets involved with the local Labour Party, which she has to have a conversation with your father about that, yeah. you know, try, I guess trying to keep politics out of the pub. They tried to start a Labour Party in Wickham. A few of them got together just after the war, and they couldn't find anybody to be treasurer. A woman called Mrs Bell, a very assertive woman, decided that my mother would be the treasurer <laughs> because she said that everybody knew her, uh, she was used to dealing with money, i.e. putting change across the bar, a pint would be such and such. <laughs> and so that would be fine. So my mother agreed to be treasurer of the local Labour Party. But they didn't know where they could meet. You no politics in pubs, mm. absolutely no politics, no religion. So Dad said, well, if you meet 
when it's closing time, it's just a kitchen again. It isn't a pub kitchen. And if you're out before half past five, we're still just a kitchen. So they can't get us for that because we're not licensed at that time. So you can have it for that time. And so they use that as the meeting place. That sense of post-war optimism does come across, doesn't it? I mean, it feeds through, you write about the NHS, obviously this burgeoning labour movement on the West Coast. There was a great move for change. Mm. And there were marches. I mean, you went went to the West Coast. I mean, it wasn't the Durham Miners Gala, but there were versions of that in a much smaller community. Marches with banners and bands. I mean, everybody had a band. Wickham had a a band, a silver band. Mm. Uh, Spacer had a good band. Working had a terrific band. They all had bands. And these are brass bands. Brass bands or silver bands, which wasn't as expensive. The instruments weren't as expensive. There's a lot of fondness, obviously, for the town which we've spoken about, but there are undercurrents of darkness in there. One of them is violence. Yes. There's some uncomfortable passages when you are upstairs in the pub listening to fights downstairs. Yeah. There were fights in the pub when people had too much to drink. You know, you had people coming in on a Friday night, Saturday night, a bad word standing on somebody's toe, an old grudge coming up, and there would be a fight, mm. often in the singing room. The job was to get them out without disturbing everybody else. And so Dad would lock the side door of the bar, so lock my mother in, and then they'd come out, my dad and the couple of helpers he had, and try to push the guys out of the onto the street so they could finish their fight on the street, which I had watched from the window of my bedroom. They really slugged it out. And then the next morning... Sunday morning, almost all of them would come around to apologise to my father and say, it's the last time it'll happen, Stan. I don't know what happened to me. Just he says something. Yeah, but I'm really very sorry, Stan. And I said, no, it doesn't matter. You're barred for three months. You can't come in for three months. And I was watching there, standing just down the corridor while this exchange was going on. And sometimes it was quite easy. These were tough lads, you know, and they weren't bad, but they didn't want to be barred. Uh, But he wouldn't give in. No. At dance halls, they flared up, and they could be different. If a gang from Spatia, which was a tough mining town eight miles away, yeah. came in looking for a, a new place to have a dance in Wickton, it was inevitably going to be a fight between the Wickton guys and the Spatia guys. And a lot of people went for the fight. Now, I'm going to tell you a true story. I don't know what I put in the book. Or not. I had cousins. One of them was a professional boxer. His younger brother was about my age. Dead now. He was a really nice man. He was smashing. He just worked at an ordinary job. But I say ordinary job. He was in the drama group in his little village, a mining village. He acted there. He wrote plays for it. This is an ordinary guy. Anyway, <laughs> we were at this dance in a hangar in Sillith, which was converted and used to have aircraft in. We were having a very nice time. And then he just said out of the blue, oh, come on, let's have a fight. And I looked at him. I said, you'll murder me. I mean, I can't keep up with you anymore, Brian. Oh, come on, it'll be all right. And I've never forgotten that because he was so nice about it. And he just thought it would be a good idea. But, and something to do. Yeah, no, I just like fighting. Right, I see. And there was this, this incident in the 1840s <laughs> where there was a riot in Wickton yeah. with the weavers. The Wickton weavers were quite famous. And they, they sent in the cavalry. And so they came from Carlisle, trotted the 10 miles into Wickton to put down the riot. And the judge said, I have concluded that Wickton men just fight for the love of fighting. so there's that going on and it could be quite nasty the dancers but yes it could no buts it could that's the flip side of of the small town isn't it there's a a kind of element of 
claustrophobia maybe and needing to and grudges family grudges yeah i mean this family never i'm not going to mention names because they're still there Mm. this family never never got on with that family and that family never got on with that family yeah and the dances of course again we don't really have them anymore these are kind of the equivalent of the nightclub back in the day aren't they these are are big bands often often big bands and uh, and good dancing yeah uh you know people doing the quick step and the foxtrot the slow foxtrot with prizes yeah. yeah yeah I'm interested in the relationship between Wigton and the Lakes because it seems to be very peripheral. You know, there's a few people who go for a day out. It's there, but not there. It's on the horizon. Yes. But, but it's not part of your life, really, for, for many years. No, it wasn't really. Um, it was where you went for a, a Sunday school trip. You'd go to Keswick for a Sunday school trip, save up some spending money and go on a bus, look around Keswick, maybe get on a boat, go around the lake, come back and then come back. Of course, Skiddaw was on the horizon of Wigton. You looked up and the south there, there was Skiddaw. But it wasn't a place you went to regularly. When you went regularly for holidays or for outings, it was Silleth, which was uh, on the coast. And until the, the hot countries took over, it was a very popular seaside town. Mm. Um, well, it was kind of Carlisle by sea, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yes, there was a good train came from Carlisle through mm. Abitown to Silleth. Mm. And the Lake District started playing a part in my life in my early mid-teens. We'll come back to that in a minute, if that's all right, yeah. uh, Melvin. So I want to move on now to um, this tough period in your life. You've been very open about your mental health through the years, and aged around 13 years old, you have what you've subsequently described as a breakdown. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that? It started when I was in bed, and you know, I was an only child, after the pub had closed, my father and mother would often, 10.30, go for a walk together. And in bed, I would see this light in the corner of the room, like the corner there, a tiny light. This is a shorthand version of it. I would somehow think that that was me. Mm. And that what was lying in bed was what Shakespeare called the thing I am that makes me live. I didn't think of it in those terms in those days. I just didn't know what I was. So until I got that light back into me, I, I couldn't work. It couldn't function. That's just the beginning of it. It got worse and worse and went into barrier. There were variations of it where I couldn't go for a walk without hearing my own breath. And I'd walk up street past, say, Johnson's, which had two big windows, and glance in the windows at the shoes and see myself, and then I'd glance again and see that I'd disappeared. It got worse and worse, and uh, and I didn't know what to do. There was absolutely nobody I could talk to. It never occurred to you to talk to a doctor. I couldn't talk to my parents about, oh, I've got this light in the corner of the room. I mean, they think I was mm. silly. Um, I couldn't talk at school. So what happened was that I just absorbed it and uh, went from a form called 3A to 3B to 3C and then a form which was called 3L, which should have been called 3L. It was where uh, people went who just didn't want to be at school. Okay, so um, it starts impacting on your education. Oh, yeah, in a bad way. I started to swear and was threatened with expulsion from the school. It was awful. kept coming back. It does come back, flickers back now and then. It was, a, it was a very serious disturbance, uh, what they nowadays call mental issues. One of the ways that you came out of this, and in your words, got that light back into you, was through education. Yeah. And specifically, you moved to a new school, and there were two teachers there who did amazing work, and they certainly changed your life, didn't they? Mr James, most of all, and Mr Blacker. One of the things that changed my life was the fact that I started to read very heavily. 
I know it's red. I know it's red. Everything from sauce bottles to Women's Illustrated to anything I get my hands on, really. But I just started reading difficult books. I discovered that reading these, making myself read these difficult books meant that I couldn't think about anything else. Mm. I couldn't think about myself anymore, which is what I wanted to stop thinking about. I just didn't want to think about myself anymore because that was, that was having a very bad effect on me. And then there were two teachers. Mr. James was a history teacher. He was a son of a missionary from Madagascar, a congregationalist. He'd been in the war, flying spitfires in the war, very brave man. And he was an absolutely terrific teacher, strict, determined. I think he was a sort of, like his father, a missionary, but a missionary to Wick. I think he came to Wick and he said something along these lines, you know, he saw these people who needed to be put on the right path. Mm-hmm. And so he, he started making sure we stayed on at school. I was going to leave school at 15. Yeah. I didn't even think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Everybody else did. And he went, I discovered much, much later, he'd gone to see my parents three times to persuade them to let me stay on at school. I wasn't at all bothered about going to university. I just wanted to get out and work like my friends were working and I'd got a girlfriend then and everything about Wickton I liked. But he wanted me and others and others Mm. to go to university and to go to Oxford and to go to Durham. And he drove us on. He drove us on. And there's these remarkable conversations that you discover about decades later between him and your father behind your back where he effectively persuades your father to support you into staying in education yeah he does when i heard about that which i heard about much later 40 50 years later in my life that there'd been this contact between the two of them, i was surprised because my father himself had passed scholarships and not been able to go and i thought he would have said okay let him go i may be good but mr james said your father was worried that you were happy where you were and he didn't think you'd be happy if you left it he thought you wouldn't you wouldn't like those sort of people you wouldn't like going there so uh, he wasn't too keen. Yeah, right. uh, so a kind of concern for you that yeah. leaving Wigton wouldn't have worked? For you. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked, yeah. We move on now to talk a bit more about the Lake District. The great ex-Fell Wanderer, uh, Alfred Wainwright, writes very movingly about his Orist Head moment, uh, where he discovers Lakeland when he's a young man. And there's a lovely chapter in your book about... Binzi, which we've already spoken about. That's where we are on our virtual walk. But you go up there and quite a kind of spiritual experience, it would seem to me, because you didn't have a, a relationship with the lakes particularly at that point, but suddenly something changes there. Yes, I don't know what it was, but it did. There's a sheepfold at the top, broken down sheepfold at the top of Binzi. You see right down to the mm-hmm. castle at the other end of Dernwater, the old uh, Celtic castle. And I still like going there. And it was to do with sunset to the west was the sea, of course, and the fantastic sunset. And then they were hitting the skidor and they're finding the iron ore. So the skidor was all bronze. And, uh, and I just felt something different. I felt sort of part of it and attached to it. And uh, yes. And then you go on this YHA adventure with your then girlfriend or your yeah. first love, maybe, Sarah. The youth hostels were a complete blessing. I mean, they cost very little. You met lots of new people about your age. You all mucked in, and they were well dotted over the lakes. And so you could go from this youth hostel, go over Kirkston Pass, down in Rambleside, and then, and then get, find another youth hostel. And that was the way walking, as I believe I said earlier. Walking like walking up and down Wicken was the way to get to know the town. Walking in the Lake District was to get to know the Lake District. There was one sentence that I noticed. You write, perhaps the infusing of nature with its exhilarating comfort and richness of feeling was a reward for enduring the out-of-body experience. 
the landscape there is a reward for going through this tough time. Yes, I'm glad you picked that sentence out. I believe that to be true. I mean, I think a lot of people encouraged by words with poetry went to the Lake District, one or two philosophers did, in order to look at nature and, and take in one impulse from a Vernal Wood, may teach you more and just soak it in. When people start to go to the Lake District from London, uh, mm. as it were, it was a horrible place. It was horrid, these rocks tumbling down on you. Mm. But then quite soon it became a place that brought balm and quiet and ease and, and repose and renewed you. Yes, just going there made you feel better. We'll move on now to dialect, if we can. Uh, There's this lovely Wigton boast. We speak a language that the strangers do not know. Yeah. But it's quite a curious mix, this one, isn't it? Even a Romany influence, as well as obviously the Norse, and a bit of French as well. Can you just talk about that? Well, basically Scandinavian. But then the Romany with us, we had a few gypsies used to winter in Wigton, and they spoke Romany. Kaur and Yonder and Bari and words like that. Uh, which the Wiccan lads took to. They thought they were smashing words, so they, would, <laughs> they adopted it as their twang. Barilal spot and Yon Kawarawa Yonder and Dukas and uh, all that sort of thing. They just became part of the way we spoke. You do write as well that you were caught between two tongues. Over the last two or three years in school, when you're in the sixth form and these teachers, they don't tell you not to speak broad, but it sort of behoves you to speak less broadly. Because they just don't understand the dialect, and so they're forever saying, what do you mean? And that's a pain in the neck, so you stop saying what you mean and just say what they think you mean. And then you go to university, and and I think that going back from university to Wiccan was very strange because you felt they expected you to be have become different, and you desperately mm. didn't want to be different. And really, the most thing you didn't want to be was different. The best compliment you'll get, he hasn't changed a bit. That's the compliment you were looking for. But on the other hand, trying to slip back into the dialect seemed to be affected. So you're, you're caught in between there, yeah. You hint at the big change that's coming there with your university days, but there's this kind of tension, I think, in the book, isn't there, between what there is not only in terms of the town, uh, which of course is changing all the time, you know, you've got these new housing estates springing up around the outskirts of town, but also yourself, there's this moment when you have to decide whether you're going to stay at school. And although that's a very positive change for you, it does mean you're leaving behind some of your friends, effectively. Yeah, I didn't like that very much at all. And that was one of the things that I wanted to stay for. I'd got such good friends. And they stayed friends until, alas, they've all died now. They stayed friends for the rest of my life. I'd go back to Wigton regularly or to High Ivy and go down to Wigton, which is still my centre. When you stay at school and your peers enter the world of work, you write, it signals a fork in the road. If my senses had been sufficiently sensitive, perhaps, I would have heard the many small fractures and tearing as I was very gradually ripped away by myself from a previous self in a deeply cohesive society. This is fracturing and tearing, and this is something that's hurting. Yes, yes, you just felt that somehow or other you were being excluded from something you'd been very much part of. There was nothing you could do about it, and you were being excluded by yourself. It wasn't as if anybody was excluding you. I think the expectation was, from quite a lot of them, that you changed, that you were posh now, and you weren't the slightest bit, but that was a thought. Okay. For instance, you didn't do any real work. When are you going to get a job? So there's a bit of an edge to it. You've spoken about your father being quite distant, but there's this lovely, I guess, sacrifice that your mother and father make 
they've had enough of the pub, particularly yeah. your, your mum. Yeah. And she says to your father, I want out. Your father subsequently gets a job on the West Coast and they announce to you that you're moving, leaving the pub <coughs> yeah. and you're off to uh, the, the bright city lights of Workington. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to go. You make it very clear. In fact, you're not going to go. You're pretty uh, stubborn about that. What's really lovely is they do think about this and they stay for you. Yeah, yeah, they did. I'd worked out how to do it when they went there. I'd stay in Wickton and stay with my grandparents. I could have bunked up in bed with my Uncle Wilson. I suppose I thought that Mr James and Mr Blacker and what was happening to the school, I suppose I thought that was a lifeline I just wasn't going to be able to reconstruct. I wouldn't know anybody. So there was that. I'm a bit nervous about that, I suppose. But most of all, I just was dug in. The reason I'm uh, stuttering a bit now is that it's, it was difficult to articulate then. And I was quite straightforward about it. I said, I'm just not going. And I think they were, I think they were a bit surprised and then a bit shocked, but I just wasn't going to go. Eventually, uh, Dad said, uh, oh, don't move, which was very, very good of him because I think, especially my mother... I think she'd, she'd had it. She was tired. Mm. It's a very demanding job. It's every day of the week you're in a pub. There's no days off, not one. Right. Even you're working on Christmas Day. I mean, what my mother wanted more than anything, anything, was a normal life with an ordinary house like her friends had, an ordinary little house in Wickham, and getting on with being somebody who lived in Wickham. Stopped work at 6 o'clock in the evening and didn't work on uh, Sundays and Saturday afternoons. And instead of this relentless 365-day drive. And we'll come to some final reflections now, Melvin, if that's all right. Uh, this book was written during the COVID lockdown. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, what, what prompted you? What was it about that period where you, your mind started going back well, to... Well, the truth Wicked? is rather dramatic, but it's true. The COVID lockdown, I, I got very, very ill. But that's all past now. I'm through all that. Because I made a note. I thought, well, I want to do one more book. What's it mm. going to be? I've got one more book. That's what I thought. And I, I want to write a book about what it was really like to come from an ordinary background. And that's why I'm going to write it out of memory. I don't want to look things up about what other people did. I just want to do what I did and my parents did and my friends did and get as near the truth as that as I can. That's what I want to do. That's the drive of the thing. And the story will take care of itself uh, mm. because the story is the story of everybody who, who mm. follows that track. So that's what I sat down to do. Leave a chronicle. I think I've always been interested in chronicles. But if anybody's interested, there it is, a chronicle of somebody who lived this sort of life in the middle of the hinge century, 20th century, where we changed from one sort of society into another, where we had the biggest war they'd ever been, uh, where the social changes were bigger than they'd been, and so on and so forth. And in the middle of that, somebody's life story mm. in what people would have thought was the bottom of the heap. Well, we weren't the bottom of the heap. What was going on was fascinating and very, I think, noble in its way, not, not just giving in. There's a quote that reads as follows, As I grow older, I look for answers in memory as I do in writing this book. And I wonder, what answers did you find, if any, while writing the book? I hadn't realised until I remembered it what a rich society it was. I come back to that because it's very important. One of the reasons I don't like talking about working class uh, is that people have talked it to death and, the, and they've ruined it as a concept. But it was so varied. Mm. What was working class about somebody who bred dogs and wanted crufts? Is that working class? Mm. What about working class, a man, man who 
had allotments, entered competitions and wiped the floor with everybody else. What was working class about? A lot of the activities they did, the choirs they were in, really seriously good singers, seriously good choirs. The thing that I emphasised most, and I didn't set out to emphasise it, but what I found I was emphasising was that I'm sick to death of people writing miserablest working class mm. books about working miserablest people. We were not miserablest. There are some miserable parts of the working class, some miserable parts in a different way of the middle class and the upper class. More miserable than you could think, just miserably bloody useless. <laughs> I remember talking to David Hockney once, and we were talking to my class, he said, we always thought we were first class. And I thought, well, I, we felt the same, we thought we were OK. There wasn't much we missed. We danced, we sang, we had games, we had teams. It was a very, very rich life. My life in Wickham from 1939 until mid-50s, was rich in everything that mattered. Everything. I didn't miss a thing, if you want to put it that way. There's a moment when you're looking at the Lake District Fells and you write, why leave this? What more was there? This was surely more than enough. And in fact, the last lines of the book read, I would go, but I would never leave. And I'm just wondering... What is Wigton to you now, Melvin? What is the town? Well, I, I go back... A lot of it's gone and it's been hollowed out in a way for car parks and stuff, but that's the way life goes. And so there's changes there, but I, get, I still get a lot out of it. I still love going down Little Lane and down Water Street. When I go to Wigton, I immediately go down all the back alleys and lanes and love being there, yeah. Mm. Fabulous. Well, thanks for that. We're going to end with our usual quick-fire questions, if that's all right, Melvin. Great fun. So I'll start with this one. What is your favourite Lake District fell? I think I like Skiddle. It was the first one I went up as a, as a young man. Then I went up the other side, and I've been up in different ways. You feel you've got someone when you climb Skiddle, and it's near Wickton. Yes, I like Skiddo. It's not the most intricate. There are more intricate and more demanding, certainly more demanding fells, but I like Skiddo. What is your favourite view? Well, I like the view from Binsia, as I said earlier in this. When I'm sitting on top of Binsia, especially towards sunset, looking out towards the west, and then looking at Skiddo itself with all the colours that the sunset plays on it, and, and then into the valley... You're spoiled for views in the Lake District. <laughs> I mean, as Coleridge said, the prospect changes every few yards. So you just walk up somewhere and look out, and that's another great view. It's like picking one sheep out of a thousand. Which season is your favourite in Lakeland? Uh, I like autumn. Colours, trees? Yeah, the colours and the sort of sense of melancholy. And Yes, I like autumn. Yeah. Who is your Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? Well, it's got to be Wordsworth. I know he's obvious, but the fact that he's obvious doesn't stop him being important. What is it specifically about Wordsworth? I just, he actually radically changed the way English poetry goes. Uh, somebody was talking to me the other day about comparing the impact Wordsworth had with the impact that pop music had later on. It just changed the game. All of a sudden, you could be a great poet writing in the most simple language imaginable. I measured it from side to side, it was six feet long and five feet wide. Now, that isn't one of his great poems. Quite a thing. Mm. When you look at poetry as England's greatest gift, and this man from Cumberland said, well, I'm not having that, I'm doing it this way. When he wanted to be ornate in the prelude, basically he was breaking it down and breaking it down. So from the language of ordinary people, about ordinary people. And he changed, but that's why Keats and people rushed up to the lead district to see him. On a Lakeland walk, where do your thoughts wander? Oh, they just wander, that's the point. The whole point is that they're undirected. The whole point is that you let it happen. 
what you do is you set off walking and then it happens to you, this or that, big things, little things, it drifts through you and that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> do you have a favourite Lakeland pub? Yes, I do. Well, my favourite pub is the Ivy pubs. They're both closed now. Yeah. They're very good. Is that pubs. the Sun? Sun was very good. Uh, but there's the uh, Pheasant, the bar and the Pheasant out at Bassenthwaite. She's Bassenthwaite, yeah. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. a lovely, lovely bar. Mm-hmm. I haven't been since they've changed the place. Absolutely smashing bar to be in, to drink in. People were there were good. That was a lovely pub. Mm. Yeah. If you could take one book, this will be difficult, I think, for you, Melvin, but if you could take just one book about Lakeland or Cumbria onto a desert island, what would it be? <laughs> this is the hardest bit of the interview. <laughs> I, th- I think I'd take lyrical ballads, Wordsworth and Coleridge. If you were Prime Minister for a day, and actually I think uniquely in terms of people we've interviewed so far, you are able to make some change at a political level. So if you were Prime Minister for a day, what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria? I would complete the wall around Cumbria. There's a wall in the north, there's a sea to the west... We can build up the wall to the east and then put a wall at the bottom and seal it off. So if you wanted to come into Cumbria, you had to pay. Not a lot of money, but enough money. So you didn't just walk in and walk out. So out of that money, which would be considered the millions that go there, which would be a substantial sum, a substantial sum, you could use that to keep it up to speed in all the ways of looking after the walls, looking after the paths, looking after... Uh, that's how I build a proper wall around Cumbria. So this is a kind of a congestion charge of some description, something uh, like that? Would that work? No, it's an entrance fee. OK, there we go. So Hadrian needs to come back and complete the different... Complete the job. Yeah, OK. Um, describe your perfect Lakeland day. And you get a full day, Melbourne, so you can pick what to do for your, your perfect Lakeland day. It's very difficult. I think I'd go back, I'd get a bus or something, and go back and have another look at Scorfell and Scorfell Pike. Ah. I've been there for a long time. Which route would you go? Would you go from Seathwaite? Would yeah. you go from Wasdale? Seathwaite. Yeah. Borrowdale? Yeah. Up the Guides route, maybe? Yeah. Fabulous. My final question then, uh, Melvin. When the time comes and a few friends gather to remember you in a place that means something special to you, where in Lakeland might it be? Well, if it were Lakeland, it'd be the top of Binsey, but I'd prefer Wigton. <laughs> From Hampstead all the way back to Threlkeld and the little lonning we're standing in. <laughs> what an outrageous journey. Super speedy. Quickest I've ever driven up the M6, that was. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you've listened to the interview, Mark. It was lovely, actually. Oh. Melvin was very generous with his time. And he asked after Cumbria. I loved his memories. And I mean, oh, yes. honestly, I, I can barely remember what I did last week. He's able to bring up the minutest details and everybody's name. Incredible. Yes, incredible. What a wonderful man. The thing was, the people of Wixon mattered to him and he imbued a pride in them and found what they did significant. And it was a tremendous wrench to leave the place. Despite the going through a really tough patch in his early teens, Mr James mm. and Mr Blacker, mm. the Yorkshireman who loved English literature, are the two people above all others 
who gave us the Melvin Bragg we have today. We wouldn't have the South Bank show in our time, but for those two gentlemen. He might have been brought up in a town that was locked away in the far northwest, but he now has gone to the stars and back. He made a very powerful case about why the working class mattered, why working class values mattered, and he was quite big on this. There are too many miserable narratives where there isn't a lot of celebration and that kind of richness, you know, that is the word. He mentioned when he spoke to David Hockney about being working class, and David Hockney said, we're not working class, we're first class. Yeah, that's a great line. Absolutely wonderful line. And lovely, actually, as well, that somebody who's got a very busy life welcomed Country Stride into his home, you know, what a great thing, and again, shows his ongoing commitment to and support of Cumbria. Uh, housekeeping marks. So we're on episode... 112. 112 for 111 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media. Oh, at Facebook and Twitter, at CountrySTRIDE1. Twitter or X, however you decide to... um, Goodness me. Don't put all your Xs in one basket. (laughs) We keep this modest boat afloat through the contribution of generous listeners via Patreon. So... If you like what we do and you're able to spare as little as £2 a month, we are incredibly grateful to all those who do so. You can find out how to do that at www.countrystride.co.uk as well. Thank you so much for supporting us. It keeps this going. Uh, next up, Mark, do we know what we're doing? I know uh, we have one coming up. Yeah, we've got, we've got running. We've got... Uh, yeah, fell and trail running in the Lake District. Yeah. Why people do it? Yeah, goodness me. I'll, I'll take my hats off to them. Uh, but we've got a lot of lovely ones, and I'm looking forward to the Christmas one. Keep my hat over that one. It's going to be a special one. That's a special one, yeah. No hints on what's going on there. But that's it, really, from us for today. Uh, from Hampstead and also Threlkel, the twinned venues for today's broadcast. We're saying goodbye for today and see you on next fortnight's Country Stride.